This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Maria Chalia, who is one of the neonatal intensive care consultants at Great Ormond Street. She's going to be talking to me about neonatal seizures, discussing a definition, presentation, classification, investigations and management, and covering several points in both the neonatology and neurology sections of the MRC-PCH curriculum. Thank you so much, Maria, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Emma. Thanks for inviting me. Could I start just by asking you for a really basic definition of what a seizure is? So there's a couple of definitions, depending on whether you want to define them clinically or from a neurophysiological point of view or from a biological point of view. So so what happens to the brain when we're having a seizure is that this is an event secondary to an excessive synchronous depolarization of neurons. What we see electrographically on the EEG is we see a sudden abnormal EEG event that is defined by a repetitive and evolving pattern with a minimum two microvolts from peak to peak voltage. So the actual amplitude, how broad the wave is, changes in voltage and should last for at least 10 seconds. Okay, so that's the definition of a seizure. And then presumably, if we're talking about a neonatal seizure, we're talking about a seizure happening in a baby who is up to 28 days old. How common are seizures in the neonatal period? So their frequency varies between term and preterm infants and also varies because they're all based on previous research studies on what modes they use to capture seizures. So whether they've used amplitude integrated EEG or multi-channel EEG or whether they use pure clinical observation as to what we think is a seizure and also the populations and how big the populations that were studied are. Rough estimates of what is out there in the literature at the moment is that anything between 1.5 to 3 per thousand live births for the term infants. And then when we're talking about preterm infants, you'll find a huge variability in the, in the literature from 10 to up to 100 per thousand preterm live births. So quite vast. And again, there you see that bigger variety in kind of like difference in the actual nature of the studies. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So basically much, much more common in preterm neonates. Yes, exactly. And I'm assuming it's also more common in neonates that are admitted to the NICU as opposed to neonates that don't require a NICU admission. Yes, that is correct. So having a seizure is something that can go unnoticed. So it's something that can happen in the postnatal ward or even at home and maybe when the baby's asleep. But usually what we pick up on is whether a baby was born relatively sick and needed immediate medical attention. Or it's something that the mum picks up on if it's around feeding time 
changing the nappy when she, she notices a funny turn or something else out of the ordinary that she wouldn't expect her baby to do. And what are the common causes of seizures in this age group? In general, causes of neonatal seizures, again, going back to the literature, in developed countries, up to 60% of neonatal seizures are attributed to a hypoxic ischemic insult. And sometimes that gets a little bit confused with a broader term of neonatal encephalopathy. To give you an example, a baby that's born floppy because they may have a congenital myotonic problem can also be encephalopathic. So it's not necessary that this had a hypoxic event. But hypoxia ischemia is something that happens usually in the last term close to birth or around birth. So that accounts almost to 60%. In some countries, developing countries, even up to 80% because of poor access to maternity services. Then one of the second biggest causes, up to 20 to 30%, is stroke. And again, that's something that's unusual to think that a baby can have a stroke. They are large artery strokes. So most commonly, the middle cerebral artery is involved. And in particular, the left more than the right, kind of like in a 60%, 40% ratio, or the anterior or the posterior cerebral artery. Whereas in adults, you get like the smaller hemorrhagic infarcts rather than the bigger arteries, smaller arterial vessels get infarcted. So that is actually the second commonest cause for a neonatal seizure, especially when we're talking about term incense. Then going down the list of differentials, you have intraventricular hemorrhage, which of course is more associated to preterm infants. It's not something that we never see in term infants, but it is something most commonly associated with a developing brain ex-utero of an extreme preterm infant. You may have things like a very simple thing like electrolyte disturbances or hypoglycemic event. And this is something that in our training, we always learn that One of the basic things that you can do if you think that the baby's having a seizure, just get a gas, just get a sugar because you don't want to get that wrong. You want to make sure that you are treating hypoglycemia and it's it's the most easy treatable cause. Sodium is another one and especially low sodium. And then often we ask, what is the mom's sodium? Because the mother's sodium affects the baby's sodium the first 48, 72 hours of life. So sometimes mummies drink a lot of water in their pregnancy, especially towards the late part of the pregnancy, and they can make themselves hyponatremic. So sodium levels than less than 125 can cause a risk for seizures. Things like hypomagnesemia, hypocalcemia, we always check. They're not as common, but it's good to check because also there are electrolytes that you can give corrections and you can improve things for the baby. Then you have things like toxins. So if the mum is using substances that we are aware of, so it's always good to think about urine toxicology or to just consider that in the social history. And more rare things are congenital things. So if the baby has a structural anomaly of the brain, or they're coming more and more into the picture now, because as you know, we're doing a lot more genetics, that there are some genetic onset epileptic, they call them developmental encephalopathies or developmental epilepsies. So we're seeing a lot more gene-specific epilepsies that can present earlier on in life, which say 10 years ago, we will classify as intractable seizures with no obvious cause. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Now you've got improved genetic testing, you know what the cause is. Exactly. 
So obviously there's quite a lot of different causes for seizures. Is there any way of classifying seizures in neonates according to their cause or according to any other feature? Yes, so traditionally, when we're talking about classification of seizures, we are talking about clinical observation. So what do we see when we have confirmed the seizure on some form of EEG? In the past, we were using the Volpe classification that will classify seizures into subtle, tonic, clonic, and myoclonic. And that is based on a quite big cohort of patients. And most of those studies are based on observation. So it's what the clinicians saw rather than what was confirmed on EEG. With time, we have realized that we're not so great at actually recognizing seizures clinically. And we get it right almost 50% of the time, which is a very poor clinical observation. And the reason is because they are different to what you expect to see from a seizure in an older child. Their head, their brain is not as well developed as an older child. They're not able to give you the full-on tonic-clonic seizures that you would see in an epileptic or a child with a first seizure or a very focal clonic. So you tend to see more focal presentation which can then get generalized. So you never have generalized seizures in babies and you can never have tonic-clonic seizures in babies. So this is an important message to get out there. Now, the new classification was published in 2020 by a big working group from the International League Against Epilepsy. The acronym is ILAE, classification. And They are saying that you can only classify seizures after you have confirmed them on EEG. So that first is a big step. And then you move on to the clinical. So you see the seizure on the EEG. What do you see on the video or the patient if it's right in front of you? So the classification one is only electrographic. So you don't see any clinical component. And this is very important because neonatal seizures 60 to 80 percent, some present as electrographic only. And as you rightly said at the start, it is often on babies in the neonatal intensive care and they may be on a lot of monitoring, they may be on a lot of sedation and sometimes even paralysis. So it's good to kind of like remember that those babies could well be seizing depending on what brought them to NICU. And then you have the electroclinical. So EEG changes with the clinical component. And they classify this in four categories. One is the motor. And then within the motor, one is automatisms. Automatisms are things that the babies can do, like kicking, cycling, boxing with their arms, twitching, eye flickering, all these little things. They're now called motor automatisms. These used to be called subtle seizures in the past. Then you have the clonic, which are the most well-associated seizures with stroke, focal clonic seizures. And it's one of the type of clinical observation that you can be almost 95% definite, even without AG, that this baby is having a seizure. Then you have epileptic spasms, myoclonic or tonic. Then their second category is the non-motor, where you get your autonomic changes. So what we say, what we see on the monitor, we see an unexplained saturation or unexplained tachycardia with high hypertension, usually 
but you can also have hypotension. These are the autonomic changes. Behavioral arrest, which in the neonate would be also an apneic event. And then sequential, and the last category is unclassified. The sequential seizure is a seizure that has a motor component and it may also have some autonomic changes. But the thing is that there is no clear eye that is most predominant. So say that a baby starts having eye deviation with tonic extension of the arms. And then after that starts having slonic movements of the right leg, for instance. If this was phased out in time in a sequence, and you cannot really say that the most prominent thing about the seizure was the tonic side of things, you call this a sequential seizure. So it's more of a descriptive term. Right. Okay. So generally they're classified according to their EEG criteria and then the kind of type of motor activity that they have or type exactly. of clinical seizure activity that you see. You mentioned right at the start that neonates don't present like older children when they have seizures. They don't have the typical tonic-clonic seizures. It's more focal. Can you just give an overview as to the ways that a neonate might present with seizures? If it's hard to spot, what does it look like? What are the kind of signs that would alert you to the fact that a neonate might be having a seizure, either on the NICU or even, you know, what do parents report if they have a, a seizing neonate at home? What are the things that a parent would notice? So it depends on the setting, of course. So as you've mentioned, at home or in the postnates, it's always focal. But by the time people notice, it may have become generalized. So to start off with the focal, what people may notice is that they may see a very subtle clonic movement, for instance, of the fingers or the toes, or there might be a twist of the wrist. Another thing is the eye movements. So there can be a tonic gaze. So that's a tonic seizure when there's extreme gaze of the eyes toward one side and perhaps the arms become tonic, so stiff and extended pointing towards the other side of the, the baby's gaze. The time when you, when your full attention is on the babies, usually times around feeding and especially breastfed babies or bottle fed babies, like when you're folding them, when you're looking at them and it might be around that time because they're more awake, they're feeding. And this is when you may notice more their extremities. On other occasions, they may be well wrapped up or they may be asleep and this might not be something so obvious. Another thing that can happen, obviously, after this kind of funny turn or, or movement is that their breathing may be affected. So this is usually what alerts parents. They may not have not seen the movement, but their breathing gets affected. They may go blue, they may stop breathing, or their breathing might become erratic as they're coming out of the seizure. At that point, they may also vomit if this, an otherwise well baby was being fed. In the neonatal environment, in the intensive care, or when they're presenting to you in A&E or at birth. At birth, it's fairly easy. Usually the most frequent thing that we see, unfortunately, is babies that had perinatal distress. So an element of asphyxia, lack of oxygen. And then they come to you and they're resuscitated to be resuscitated. And you may see a clinical component, which usually it's a tonic or a clonic. Or they're very, very floppy. They need assistance with their airway and breathing. And then you take them onto the NICU and because of the story, you need to put on some form of EEG and then you may see the seizures electrographically. For the neonate who is established on the neonated unit, 
a lot of the time the seizures are electrographic only. Or because we have lack of video recording, and this is where our lack of knowledge comes, we don't notice the, the movement because it's so subtle and it might be at the, the toes. The toes are well wrapped up under a blanket and then are labeled as electrographic. So they're very subtle. I don't know if that, that answers your question roughly. Yeah, no, it does, I think. It's basically just having a high index of suspicion, isn't it? And if you're at home, that they might... Well, it might will be the feeding. It will be the changing breathing pattern. Sometimes, especially when they're epileptic spasms, they do see a typical tonic-clonic component where the baby bends over into. So that, that's a typical thing that they will describe to you. But right. that's a rare thing compared to the usual. Right. Okay. And then in the hospital setting, it's about the high risk ones having the EEG monitoring. So you exactly. can pick it up even if the signs are subtle. Exactly. Having a high index of suspicion, as you said, exactly. Great. Thank you. Moving on now to think a bit about investigations. So you already talked when we were discussing some of the causes of seizures about how it's always important to check a glucose and also checking, I think the other things you mentioned were using ease and also toxins as well, just thinking about potential causes. Are there any other investigations that are essential in every neonate who has a seizure? Yes, so after you've done your blood gas, where you can assess electrolytes and sugar and also the pH and CO2 to make sure that the baby doesn't need any respiratory support, it's good practice to try and confirm the seizure that you're suspecting on EEG or amplitude integrated EEG. But is that not the case because you are in a DNA or in a district hospital where there is no facility? Baseline things would be blood, check a full blood count, TRP, urinary electrolytes, liver function tests, check the jaundice levels. Basic metabolic screen would include an ammonia and lactate. Lactate, again, you can usually obtain from the blood gas. Check the ketones. Check the plasma amino acids. In some hospitals, that's part of their baseline metabolic investigation as well. Amino acids and organic acids in the urine. It's good to think about infection because normally infection can bring on seizures if there is a baby that has an underlying problem or infection per se can cause seizures, meningitis can cause seizures. So it's good to take a blood and urine culture and also then consider depending on the behavior of the baby and thinking about causes of completing with the CSS to exclude meningitis. In terms of blood investigation, in terms of thinking of congenital infection, think of torch. I know we do it a lot of the time and a lot of the time is negative, but it's a good baseline investigation especially toxoplasma, CMV, is not as uncommon as we think. Another one to consider is syphilis, because more recently, some centers across the UK, they've seen an increase in syphilis. And we are not quite sure whether it has something to do with reduced antenatal testing during COVID times, or whether it's just a more of an epidemic. At that point, often like people are like, should they take some more CSF investigations for more rare neurological things? Not as the first baseline, but that's something to consider if it's like a, a difficult LP level puncture and something to consider whether you need to take them at that point. But with the first seizure or two seizures, you wouldn't proceed to doing the more fancy, rare things. So you will try to look for the common causes first. Then say you're dealing with intractable seizures and you have already used more than two antiepileptics to try and stop the seizures, 
then you should be considering more of a third line investigations and you should be taking advice from pediatric neurologists, whether they're in your hospital or at the nearest tertiary level hospital. Okay, so intractable seizures on two anti-epileptics would be an indication for the specialist referral. Are there any other important indications for onward referral and for getting more specialist investigation, potentially thinking about an MRI or other forms of imaging? So it's an isolated seizure or a couple of seizures that responded to the first or second line treatment. You will do the baseline blood investigations and urine investigations, and then you will consider a head scan, a cranial ultrasound. And depending on the overall appearance of the baby and whether you have come up with a treatable cause, you will then consider an MRI or not. A single seizure does not immediately qualify for a brain MRI. If there are no dysmorphic features, so if it's a normal looking child with one seizure and you found a treatable cause, then we leave it there. But if it is an unexplained event, if there is dysmorphism, there is intractable seizures, they may have, for instance, hypoxia ischemia, but you don't have enough evidence for it. And they go on to demonstrate abnormal pathologies or neurology. Then again, it's something to consider. Should we be escalated to a certain line investigation? Should we be thinking about metabolic? So it's like any other thing that we're trying to treat in medicine. When you have excluded all the treatable causes, the list of differentials will always be the metabolic, neurometabolic. So that's where you should start thinking. MRI can be at any point, depending on what the pediatrician feels, but a single seizure that was easy to treat wouldn't qualify for one. Right. Okay. That makes complete sense, actually. It's just about how happy you are that you know what the cause is for that event. Is it the same for EEG or would you have a lower threshold for doing an EEG, given that it seems to be such a kind of cornerstone for diagnosis and the new classification? EEG should be essential. The multi-channel EEG is the gold standard for diagnosis, but in a lot of hospital settings, we do have amplitude integrated EEG, which could be a single channel or double channel EEG that can still give her good enough evidence. So it is good in picking up almost up to 80% of seizures. So it's definitely better than nothing. And it's something that you can apply at the cot side. So I will say that this is an absolute indication that and the cranial ultrasound scan, which you can do at the bedside, should be part of your baseline investigations. Now, it is good to complete with an EEG, but the EEG is not always accessible at 2 a.m. in the morning when you most need it. However, it is good practice to refer for an EEG, even if it is away from the seizure, so that you assess what the background activity of the brain is like and whether there are any epileptiform discharges that can potentially give seizures later on. Right. Okay. So you might get useful information from an EEG, even if it's not occurring when they're having the seizure. Exactly. Just when they've, when they've stopped yeah. seizing, it can still be helpful. Moving on now to think about management, what are the principles of seizure management in neonates? Is it the same as how you'd manage seizures in an, in an older child? So with neonatal seizures, what we know so far is that they need to be treated ASAP. So as soon as you suspect them and have confirmed them on AG, you should proceed to treatment. 
So it's not a wait and see kind of approach. You'll hear a bit different from pediatric neurologists where they have the wait and see approach, but they may have established epileptic children. So we're now talking about a patient who has their first seizure as far as we know in their life. So you're trying to treat what you see. The first line of treatment for a neonate is phenobarbitin. When you're initiating treatment, it's always good to consider what the respiratory status is like because these drugs do suppress the respiratory drive. The very first dose you could get away with non-invasive support like Optiflone or CPAP. But if you are already installating to loading more with phenobarbitin, you should consider about airway and breathing and whether you need to secure the airway and intubate. The recommended dose of phenobarbitin is 20 milligrams per kilo IV loading dose. You can repeat that with another 20 per kilo loading dose, or you can divide it into 10 and 10, given in a space of half an hour to an hour. A second line drug will be phenytoin or levetiracetam. Based on research, most recent research, phenobarbitin together with phenytoin are more effective in treating status epilepticus in neonates. Levetiracetam has not been shown to be as good as effective. However, levetiracetam is a more stable drug that doesn't have many side effects. So it is a drug of choice in certain patients like post-op cardiac patients, patients with hypotension and hemodynamic instability that are multiple inotropes, or patients that have lots of electrolyte disturbances or an established arrhythmia. So these are the kind of patients that even if they were in status, you would at all costs avoid phenytoin, which can cause cardiac arrest. So phenytoin or levetiracetam, depending on your patient and what you're seeing on EEG. And then as a third line, it will be midazolam. Oh, that's interesting. So it's basically the exact opposite of the pediatric guidelines for status epilepticus, where you would start with a benzodiazepine like midazolam and phenobarbitone would be your third line after phenytoin and Kepra. It's basically the same guideline, just completely flipped on its head. Are these national guidelines or do they vary at all from hospital to hospital? They vary a little bit. You'll find that in most places, phenobarbitin is the drug of choice, like the first drug that you pick. But then, yes, they do vary. A lot of places use lepetrafstam as a second line. And some places as the third line, they use lidocaine. Yeah, so they do vary. They're not like the APNS established guideline that you have for the, the children. Right, okay. So important to look up your local guidelines wherever you're working as well, if you're in that situation. Yes. And then once you've got that initial seizure under control, are they started on regular preventative anti-epileptic medication? The general recommendation is that if the seizure activity has stopped with first line or second line treatment, so meaning that not more than two antiepileptics, you wouldn't proceed to maintenance treatment. But if you had to escalate, then you would start maintenance treatment. So it's usually those cases that need a lot of drugs to stop the seizure activity or the seizures don't even stop, they're intractable. They may have reduced in frequency, but you know that the baby is still having some breaks from seizures during the day. Then drugs that we normally use for maintenance treatment are similar. So phenobarbitin is one and levetiracetam is another one. Some patients you will find maybe even on two. The way we choose the drug is to what the patient has responded the most to. 
What's the prognosis for neonates who have seizures and what proportion go on to develop epilepsy? So it ranges from 40 to 60% of some form of adverse outcome. They are associated to mortality. And then comes the other issues and what other causes have led to the seizures. Adverse neurodevelopmental outcome, where it will be like a disability in the form of motor disability, could be learning difficulties or epilepsy. And again, that range is up to 60%. What was more recently shown is, and especially in patients with hypoxia ischemia, because it seems that this is the most well-studied population at the moment, is that seizures were directly involved and associated to adverse neurodevelopmental outcome, irrelevant of the severity of the disease. So there's something to be told there about the quality and the quantity of the seizures. So how many hours of the day was the baby seizing? That seems to be more important than the actual underlying cause in how it will determine their future development. And something that's called seizure burden is coming a lot more. Right. Okay. So again, just highlighting how important it is to make sure that you have good seizure control um, exactly. these babies as soon as possible to prevent kind of long-term exactly. adverse neurological outcomes. Thank you. That was really interesting. Just finishing off with our standard quick fire questions. Are there any classic exam questions that tend to pop up around this subject in the membership exam? I think one would be like they present to you a case and you're meant to suspect seizures and then they will ask, what is the first test that you would like to do? And they will give you like a a choice of questions and blood gas will be, as we said, the first. Another one that comes up is along the lines of the APLS algorithm. So it will be more like pediatric rather than for neonates in specific. And it will be about the, the drug of choice. And I think a third one, if I had to think, would be what would your baseline investigations be? And then there would be a group of investigations there. So it's important to think of cranial ultrasound, EEG, baseline blood investigations and excluding infection. And then as a second line, it's good to think about congenital infection, metabolic screen, and don't forget the urine and urine toxicology. And also think about ophthalmological examination. And as you said, CT or brain MRI, depending on how acute the presentation is. Yeah, fantastic. That's really helpful. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend for listeners who might want to find out more about this topic? There is a really nice website from the International League Against Epilepsy, the one I quoted earlier, INAE, where if you type epilepsydiagnosis.org, you get a list, it's like an encyclopedia in epilepsies, and you can search different neurological syndromes or epileptic syndromes, and you get a really nice overview of everything. And this website also has some really useful guidelines. Okay, fantastic. We'll post a link to that website in the description for the episode for any listeners who might want to have a look at it. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? So I will say that neonatal seizures are more frequent than you think. They are focal, focal onset that they may have become generalized by the time they're brought to your attention. And last but not least, they're more likely to be electrographics only than having a clinical component. So please use amplitude integrated EEG or EEG where possible. 
and treat aggressively. Fantastic. Thank you. They're three excellent points and a really helpful overview of this interesting topic. So thank you so much, Maria. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.